Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, could I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because own. they are hard. Try to, try to, try to find my way home. Hey, welcome back to the Culture Force podcast. If this is your first time, we're so excited you're here. If this is your second, third, fourth, fifth time, or who knows how many times, we're really glad you're back and we appreciate you showing back up and listen to what we have to say. we got a great, great show for you today. We have Deanne Turner, the former vice president of talent for all of Chick-fil-A. I am your co-host, Chris Mefford. I am a former EVP, VP, CMO in the business world. I had a lot of jobs, Kyle. I must have said <laughs> because I kept moving along. Um, that's my co-host, Kyle, Senior Petty Officer, Kyle Bucket, a uh, retired Navy SEAL, who gives us a perspective of uh, how to live life at the highest level uh, within the military. And uh, we talk all things culture, all things leadership. And uh, today's show is going to be great. Kyle, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. You know, I spent all night last night reading Deanne's book. I powered through bet on talent. So I'm excited to get into this because you know what, Chris, she's been speaking my language throughout the, her entire book. Something that, you know, you and I have been fascinated with something I personally have been fascinated with since, you know, I think really like 2011, 2012, somewhere in there is where I really started becoming a, uh, a, a student of this concept of, Hey, we could have an input. We could have, you know, oversight, we could really bring value to the environment, to the culture, to the vibe of, of an organization or, or the people that we're working around with. So I love I'm it. Excited you said you the word vibe, it. like you're one of the those hip college kids today. <laughs> I'm vibing, dude. I'm vibing. You're doing great. Yeah. Uh, you surviving I'm, COVID? I'm, I'm doing good. You know, I'm really excited because uh, we've got a special vacation plan where we're going to leave the state of California and go to Arizona. And you know, honestly, Chris, I'm just renting this house because it has a pool in the backyard. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> because my know, kids, for the listeners, my kids are two, four, and six years old. And when you are in this stage of parenting, you need some type of distraction. So I call this distraction operation 2020. Number <laughs> one. I love it. My kids are teenagers and we do the opposite. We want to leave the kids <laughs> because when you have teenagers, you kind of vacillate between wanting to hug them and wanting to punch them in the face every 30 seconds or so. So we're actually supposed to go to Hawaii. Uh, we're supposed to go on June 1st. They've just extended their stay away from us, uh, the rest of America orders, stay out of Hawaii until June 30th. We're supposed to arrive on the 29th now and stay through the 7th or 8th. So I'm worried if we show up on the 29th, we'll be in a 14-day lockdown or does it end? I don't know. I'm so confused. I just want to take a vacation. Sit on the you beach. know what's funny is everyone listening to this? It's We're going to be probably be listening <laughs> to July or August. So everyone's going to be listening to this like, oh, those knuckleheads. Why didn't they you just do this, this, this? Maybe they're <laughs> listening to this in February and they'll appreciate the fact that we were talking about warm weather and vacations in the sunshine. Um, hey. So I love it when you tell me your stories uh, of your time in the military, and uh, you have a great story, Mike Vickers' story, 
uh, we've affectionately started oh, yeah. to call it, is what you this refer to it as. Could you share story. your Mike Vicker story with everybody? Sure, sure. So for the listener, in 2011, I am in, and 2012, I'm in southern Afghanistan in a province known as Helmand province. Helmand is heavily, heavily, heavily ied meaning there are improvised explosive devices everywhere. In fact, throughout the uh, deployment, we uncover just my my platoon, my troop, my platoon alone. We uncover 200, I think 238 IEDs just in our area. So anyway, we have what is known as a village stability platform. And at the time, it's 2012, there are only two Navy ran village stability platforms in the entire Middle East. And we are running one of them. So the Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus, is coming to visit us. Now, Ray, if you're listening, uh, I got nothing against you. You're a great guy. You were very, very nice to us. Um, Nothing against him. I speak no ill will towards him at all. But he's the Secretary of the Navy, right? He does not have the foresight, or in our minds, maybe we're a little ignorant at the time, but uh, he does not have the foresight of on the ground of what's happening in Afghanistan, right? So we're prepping our brief for uh, for his visit, and you know it's it's detailed, but we know we don't have to go into the the way into the weeds on the detail or the historical of what's going on. He just wants to know how everything's going, how we're doing, and you know visit one of his two. <laughs> one of his two uh, village stability platforms in the Middle East that are ran by the Navy. So he flies in uh, via helicopter, and I'll never forget this, Chris, till the day I die. Remind you, we had uh, we, we had done a great uh, presentation, built a great presentation for him, ready for him. But it was, you know, it was um, it wasn't extremely advanced. He gets off the, the uh, helicopter. He steps out. And there's a man right behind him. And I immediately look to Rob and I go, oh, crap. I probably said a different word (laughs) because it was Michael Vickers. Now, for those who don't know who Michael Vickers is, go watch Tom Hanks, his movie, Charlie Wilson's War. Mike Vickers is the guy playing against like three or four people. Uh, in chess, when Tom, the Tom Hanks, when Charlie Wilson uh, meets him, he's playing three or four games of chess in uh, in downtown, you know, D.C. when they when they cross paths. And uh, he was the subject matter expert, if you will, for all of Afghanistan and had spent a majority of his life, um, you know, doing or orchestrating unconventional warfare campaigns in Afghanistan. So when he, he stepped off the helicopter, uh, we were expecting to just brief, uh, you know, the secretary of the Navy. Um, and then he had the undersecretary of defense with him, a.k.a. Mike Vickers. I was like, son of a biscuit. We are. <laughs> so the joke is, you know, Rob and I used to always joke is, um, you know, know your audience, know your audience, do your <laughs> intel. Do your intel. Side note, I loved that movie and that book. Uh, the book is crazy. If you love the movie, the book is 10 times more intense and wild. It's just phenomenal. So I know exactly uh, the guy you're talking about. Yeah. Real quick, uh, Cliff Notes, so I don't leave you hanging. Here's my uh, coin right here from old Mike. I've got it right here on my desk. Old Mike Vickers gave us a big uh a big high five at the end of the day. He, he was like, you guys are doing tremendous. This was an incredible brief. And honestly, Mike, if you're listening out there, buddy, that really meant a lot to me. So thanks, Mike Vickers. Well, right on. Um, well, let's not delay. Let's get to Deanne. Uh, uh, full transparency, we are recording this intro after we've talked to her. And uh, man, does she have some incredible stuff to share. Uh, it's not any surprise why she helps create one of the most successful um, fast food franchises in the nation. And when you think about how much money they make and that sometimes their, their profitability is even higher than some of these big boys, and yet they're closed on Sunday. Uh, and she says it's because of the talent they hire and you ask, how, well, how do you find that talent or what do you do to become that talent? And she gives you all the answers. It's amazing. Let me introduce her. 
Deanne, if you don't know who she is or, or Chick-fil-A, um, well, too bad for you because those waffle fries are fantastic. But uh, Deanne is a 33-year veteran of Chick-fil-A. Prior to retirement in 2018, she was the vice president of talent and vice president of sustainability. Um, she was selected as the company's first female officer in 2001. She was instrumental in building and growing Chick-fil-A's well-known culture and talent systems. During her long career, she worked closely with Chick-fil-A's founder, Estra Cathy, and other key leaders as an architect of the organizational culture that exists there now. She was responsible for thousands of selections of Chick-fil-A franchises and corporate staff members. Additionally, she led the talent management, staff learning and development and diversity, inclusion, culture and engagement teams. Most recently, Deanne launched and led the sustainability function focusing on Chick-fil-A's strategy to implement and sustain practices of the $10.5 billion company. Today, she leads her own organization, Deanne Turner & Associates, writing books, speaking to over 50 audiences per year, consulting and coaching leaders globally. She is the author of the best-selling book, It's My Pleasure, The Impact of Extraordinary Talent in a Compelling Culture. Her latest book, Bet on Talent, How to Create a Remarkable Culture and Win the Hearts of Customers, was released in September 2019. And her new book, Crush Your Career, Ace the interview, land the job, and launch your career uh, will release in April of 2021. And Kyle, we are excited mm. to talk to her today. Deanne, welcome. Hey, Deanne, we're so excited to have you today on the episode. And let's just jump straight into it because whenever we have someone on here who has uh, an expertise in either the field of culture and leadership and hiring or finding talent. I like to ask him these questions right off the bat. And you've got two books uh, that focus specifically on this. And so it's interesting to me that most organizations are passionate about wanting to create an amazing culture. Most leaders in, in an organization want to find and hire great talent. And then the third point is they're all pretty lousy at it and none of them really ever actually succeeded doing it. Why? do so many people want this and why do they find it so hard to actually achieve this? Thanks, Chris. It's a great, it's really my pleasure to be with you today. So thanks so much for having me. You've asked some great questions. Let's start with this thing about culture. You know, it really wasn't until the last few years that you've seen organizations really take this on. Uh, some of the very best organizations over time that have produced great results, if you study them, you'll find they have remarkable cultures. But across the board, it seems like everybody's talking about the buzzword culture. And I think the simple answer is, is because today's workforce, predominantly millennials, that's one of the top three things they look for in an organization is a strong culture. The second thing they're looking for is opportunities to grow, develop, and advance. And the third thing is that they want to be about something that's bigger than themselves. They want to have impact um, and they want the company or organization that they work for to have impact. So that's why companies are focused on culture. So this thing about selecting talent, you mentioned hiring talent. I like to use the word selecting talent. You see, there's a huge difference between hiring people and selecting talent. When I think about hiring people, I'm just looking for quantity. Do I have enough? Do I have enough people to fill this shift? Do I have enough people to uh, get us through tax season? Do I have enough? But when I think about selecting talent, I'm really thinking about quality. Do I have the right people with the right skill set, the right experiences to do what I need done? So there's a huge difference between that. And I think, again, organizations that want to build remarkable cultures, they understand to do that. They have to select extraordinary talent to execute that culture. Now, your last question is, why are people lousy at it? Well, some people are great at it, but the people who aren't as successful, this is why I believe it is. They don't take the time to do it well. They're in a hurry. We're all in a hurry. We're going faster. We're working, you know, we're online 24-7. We're growing. Um, all these things are, are happening at such a speed that we've never seen before. And so, organizations are struggling to take the right time that they need to select extraordinary talent. Let me um, transition from you for a second. Hold on. Wait, wait, no, no, hold on. I, Cause I wanna ask you before you jump in with a new question, Kyle, you're in the SEALs and you often exactly talk about this very thing. How do we select talent? How do we find talent? How do we train talent? How do we train talent? I'd love to kind of hear your take 
on what Deanne just said, Deanne just said, but with regards to how the seals do it. That's exactly where I was going with this. So Deanne, I love this subject because not many people know that it takes us three, sometimes even three and a half years from a, an initial selectee, uh, say your son, for example, if he was going to join the Navy, uh, it would take us three years to make him a Navy SEAL, about three and a half years before he was actually on his first real world operation as a Navy SEAL. And so many people think, oh, wow, they don't realize, hey, it takes literally that long to make you know, someone uh, this elite warrior. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort. And, it, and we always joke in the Navy SEALs, it's a million dollar man, right? We create these million dollar men. That's our, that's one of our mm -hmm. jokes. But the time that it takes, and then when you get there, just like anything in life, just like college or something, right? When you get there, we always say, okay, shut up and get in the back of the, get out of the back of the bus because you don't know anything, right? But there are these elite warriors. But my point of what I'm saying is it takes time. So I would like to ask you is, how have you how have you figured out not with just Chick-fil-A but also any other organizations that you worked with how have you, have you figured out any great ways to hack that time if if at all well it's a hard thing to do and it's interesting that you mentioned that example of the seals and taking that much time um, because that's what happens organizations are making short-term selection decisions uh, and the workforce is driving part of that. When people are turning over jobs every two and three years, then they don't want to invest as much time in the selection or the onboarding or the training because they're investing in somebody that will leave. So you have to change the entire mindset of the culture of the organization to make, you know, they're not necessarily like they used to be. People would go, like I did, go and work for one organization for their entire career. They don't do that anymore. But you do want to select talent that's interested in, in some longer term relationship. So the hacks that I've seen uh, to answer your question about time, you know, organizations have started doing a lot of virtual interview. Of course, some of the recent circumstances have demanded that, but even before then, first round interviews were conducted often through video interviews and technology has allowed to shorten that time just to back off of the manual processes. But I actually believe you can't shortcut the most important pieces. And, and you're evaluating in the selection process, you're evaluating, evaluating three things, and all of them take time. The first one is character. This is very important. The character of your talent really has to match the character of the organization. Now, if you think about this, Kyle and Chris, the uh, culture of your organization is made up of the sum total of the character of the people associated with it. And so selecting people by their character is very important. Now we could have a long discussion of what that means, but just, just top line, what that means is that you're, that that individual's own personal purpose, mission, and core values resonates with that of the organization's purpose, mission, and values. They don't have to match perfectly but they certainly need to align in such a way that it's a great match for a longer term relationship. The second thing I'm going to select for is competency. Now we know what that is. That's the skills and experiences needed to do what needs to be done. But even competency, I, I have a little different twist to that. If I want to build an organization over time, if I want to build my leadership bench, then I want to consider not just the competency of the, um, for the current role, and that competency matches the current role, but I want to look at the future. What jobs am I going to have in the future that I want people to have competency for to, today? So competency that matches the role. And last is chemistry. Chemistry that matches the team. And this one takes a lot more time, actually, than the other two. You know, you can reference your way to the other two. You can behavioral interview your way to the other two. But when you get to chemistry, you have to spend time together. Now, you probably saw this in the SEALs, uh, but when we talk about chemistry, we're not looking for everyone who's just alike. We wouldn't solve a lot of problems if everybody was just alike. We're looking for people who actually can br bring their diverse points of view to the table, be collaborative, and solve problems. We're not looking for, you know, groupthink and everybody be just alike. What we're looking is for chemistry, people who can successfully bring their diversity and collaborate with the rest of the team. So those are the three C's of selection. And 
you can speed them up or slow them down, but there's no question it takes time. But let's think about this. You talked about the million dollar man. Well, if you invest all that money on the front end, you can be assured you're going to invest a whole lot more, a whole lot less on the back end. Let me explain it this way. When I went to Chick-fil-A, I didn't have a separation budget. Can you imagine? I had no separation budget. I had a fantastic budget for selection and a healthy budget for sustaining talent, stewarding the talent, developing the talent. So I went to the president and I said, what's up with this? I have no separation budget. He said, you won't be needing that. I said, excuse me? He said, we make long-term decisions here and we invest a lot on the front end so that we don't have to have those things on the back end. So for years and years and years, I had no separation budget. As the organization became larger, obviously, uh, there was more of that that was needed. But the truth of the matter is, it was all very small compared to selection. That's what differentiates a lot of companies. You asked me earlier, you know, what, why aren't companies not able to do this well? Well, they're not willing to invest the money on the front end. Instead, they're investing all this money on the back end in case they make a mistake instead of putting it on the front end to ensure that they don't make the mistake. I like the way you <clears throat> call it the separation budget. That sounds very, um, says a little less harsh than- um, <laughs> Than the firing budget. <laughs> yeah, than the firing budget. Um, yeah. I like it. I love the way you say that. So I'm going to counterpoint uh, one thing I think that I've seen in organizations that I work for that have been really, really good at culture. Um, when the culture itself is super healthy, when you plug someone in, I feel like the speed- to uh, sort of getting them up to speed to where you want them to be is quicker um, than when you have an unhealthy organization because everyone around them is vibrant. It's kind of like, I think I read in a John Maxwell, Jim Collins book, if you take a plant uh, from the yard or, or sort of that's dying in the garage and you put it in a greenhouse with all these other healthy plants, it tends to grow and thrive faster, quicker and be more healthy. And then when you take it out and you put it back, it kind of wilts. And so when you do have a great culture, it can help speed it. Now, I don't think you can um, sort of microwave that mentality all the way up, but just having a culture can, it just may be the, just the little bit of uh, thing you need to sort of get ahead of the competition. Because when you do have that culture and it's thriving and it's healthy, it's easier for people to get plugged in and get up to speed on things. And that sort of sets you apart from your uh, competition, if you will. Um, well, I think, so I, like I think you're exactly right about that, Chris, because if you think about that healthy culture, uh, if you've defined all those things for your organization, then likely you've also created the processes and, uh, uh, lack of a better term, programs um, to be able to uh, run people through a whole lot more quickly. And um, what happens is organizations who are disorganized in that area have weaker cultures, and it's harder to expedite that entire process of selection. Yeah, and I'm not challenging anything you said. I'm just merely saying sometimes when you're in a great culture and it's thriving and you don't really see it until you're out and you see right. bad culture in your experience, you go, wow, the reason everyone was doing so well over there is because they put so much energy, what you said, on the front end and in making sure everybody was up to speed and then they matched the character, they matched the competency, they matched the chemistry of the team. When I used to hire people from my years at Ramsey uh, for events, we would go out, I would say, hey, there's there's a few things I want to know. It would be like, hey, do, are they competent? Um, do they match the character? Do they fit the culture of the company? And do I actually want to go have a beer with them after the event? You know, basically the chemistry is what you're saying. Um, I, I'm going to be on the road with them. I'm going to be traveling with them. I need to know we're going to get along. Um, your competency may be over the moon, but if it doesn't feel like we can hang out, um, on the road, then I don't think you, you're going to be fit on this team. And, and I think that that's an area that's sometimes overlooked, especially when you transition all your hiring straight up to HR um, and your HR team isn't completely sold out on what you need and how you need it and what the chemistry. I would even go, it's one thing to fit the chemistry of the company. It's another thing to fit the chemistry of the department because that also plays a part. Yeah, it's very important to match the chemistry has to be a match with the team. Um, absolutely. You know, I used to say the same thing when I was at Chick-fil-A. I used to ask myself making those decisions, you know, would I want to be this person's business consultant when I was thinking about franchisees and traveling to the field to meet them? And we have an annual meeting that at the time was called seminar. And I would ask myself, do I want to eat dinner next to this person? That was some of my chemistry questions to kind of check myself to see if this was really the right match from a chemistry standpoint. I love it. It's good stuff.
So I want to transition a little bit, D. I'm such a I'm such a big fan of yours because of numerous things, but because I've become so infatuated with the subject of culture and culture development, and and more importantly, I would say even culture, just culture awareness as, mm-hmm. as it pertains to organizations. So one thing that you uh, that you wrote in your last book, uh, Ben on Talent, is that culture is the soul of an organization created by the stories those relationships tell. I love that line, created by the stories those relationships tell. I would love to hear you expand on that last sentence a little bit for our listeners, because the relationships that those those stories, those relationships tell is so powerful of a line. I love it. I love it. Well, I almost can't, I almost can't say the second part without talking about the first part. You know, and, and for people to think about what the soul means, you know, the soul is at the core of our being. And so when I talk about culture being the soul of the organization, it's the very core of the organization's being. And then the second part of what you asked about there is really the relationships, all of them, The it, it tells a story. And so um, culture really is all about stories, if you think about it. How do we translate our culture to others. We don't do it. I mean, we I could list off a purpose and a mission and a set of core values and guiding principles to you, but really for an organization and the people in the organization to grasp what you want um, them to understand about that, you have to explain it in a story. And um, that's how great organizations have communicated and passed down their culture from generation to generation of employees is simply by telling the stories of how the purpose, mission, core values, and guiding principles were lived out over time. So good. So good. Oh, I'm just Kyle, I'm you just... guys are good at that. I mean, you, the SEALs are really good at telling the stories. I, I think sometimes you've got to be intentional to make people aware of of the things you've got going on that make you special. And that does attract talent, um, both within the SEAL community and Chick-fil-A. You know, anybody that I know that's ever worked with the Chick-fil-A organization or within the Chick-fil-A organization loves it. I mean, they just don't partly like it. They are passionately in love with the work there and the work that they do. And uh, I mean, it stands out. I mean, it's even almost become a cultural kind of joke. My pleasure. You know, <clears throat> uh, I had an old boss that said, hey, the most amazing thing Chick-fil-A does is they teach teenagers to wear a belt and say, thank you and please. <laughs> um, and I mean, that's a, that's amazing in and of itself. Um, but when it comes to that, that creating and attracting that talent, you know, what is it that you do intentionally? This goes, I mean, Kyle, I can ask you this too. Um, that brings the talent in because it's one thing to say, hey, we need to hire people. Um, it's another thing to say, hey, we'll take our time hiring people. But it's a it's an entirely different thing to get really talented, passionate, uh, character matching people to find you. How do you do that, you guys? Well, first of all, like attracts like. And so, you know, when I think about the company I work for, Chick-fil-A, I saw that happen for decades. It started with the leader of the organization and and he was a man of high character and he created a culture where people wanted to work and um, that just uh, exponentially recreated itself over time. And so that had a lot to do with it. It's just that whole idea of like attracts like. And so when you're very definitive about what you're looking for and what you're offering, some people call that the employment value proposition. This is what you get for what you give. I like to call it, I don't, a proposition sounds like an offer that's tentative. I like to call it an employee value promise. And it's what you get for what you give. And so organizations that are able to constantly attract talent have really developed strong employee value promises. They're really clear about what they're looking for and what they want in the organization. They don't settle for anything less. And they're really clear about what their employees get in return. And they deliver on that promise without fail. So mm-hmm. good. You know, I, I call it um, our magnet culture, um, where we have this, this magnet power to draw the individuals that want to be part of it. And, and we don't draw everybody. I mean, we only draw in, you know, to a couple of hundred per year is, is all we bring into the SEAL community. It's really it's really not that many. 
But what we have done over the over the years, which is very interesting, and <laughs> to all of the listeners out there, not everybody has the ability to necessarily do this. Um, but uh, we don't care about our attrition rates, which is fascinating when you really think about it. Is we don't really care if we're going to you know create five in a year or a thousand. But what we do care about is that magnet, that magnet culture that brings in the people that we do want to bring into our community, the the individuals that are capable, just like you were saying, Deanne. And so that's that's just so powerful. Love so, it. yeah, yeah, I, I, I would. You know what? I, I was joking with Chris the other day. I was like, man, I wish I would have had this book been on talent 10 years ago. Where was this book? <laughs> well, it was being developed. <laughs> I, oh, right. Yeah, that's that's a good answer. I, I, yeah, I was, uh, about, uh, was it 10 years ago? About 10 years ago, I was at uh, a SEAL team and I was placed into a platoon that had this very, very, um, dynamic presence, this very, very aggressive culture in the platoon. Right. And I came into the platoon an outsider. These guys had just gotten back from Afghanistan, just gotten back from war. And these guys were, had just on the very, very last mission had just lost one of their best friends. And so they were getting back, they had their downtime, but when we started back up for our workup, getting, we call it our workup or unilateral training period where we're getting ready for the next deployment. When they started getting ready for that, it was game on. They wanted to take the fight back to the enemy. They had just lost their best friend. So here comes me, this outsider. And guess what? Our mission's going to be completely different. It's not going to be dynamic like it was in the prior deployment. It's going to be completely different where we're going to go and try and win over the hearts and minds of the local and regional population in Afghanistan. So now I'm walking into a platoon that has a specific culture that I need to try and change and get ready to go over to Afghanistan to impact that culture. It was like the t- the double whammy. Right. Man, I wish I would have had your book. <laughs> well, the level of seriousness is not the same in the in the restaurant world or the retail world, but it is the double whammy actually because if you don't have a strong culture among those who are serving, then it's hard to have a strong culture among those that you serve. And if you have a strong culture among those that you serve, it has impact on creating a strong culture on those who are serving. I'm so lost on that, but that's so beautifully <laughs> said. I mean, it, it's no, for real. It's, I think if you go back and listen to that slowly, that is very well said. You know, I talked to Tony Shays, the, the creator, okay. former uh, of Zappos, mm-hmm. and he said what he teaches his team is if you pour into the customers, if I pour into my team, my team will pour into the customers. I don't have to worry about the customers. I worry about the team. My team then worries about the customers. That's the way this is supposed to work. Um, And I think that's kind of what you were saying uh, to an extent. Yeah, Tony's a master. In fact, I talk about him in Bet on Talent. You might remember that and and the way that they do that and the way they free up their employees to serve. And um, that's a very principle-based company that says serve the customer, you know, and he takes care of them and they turn around and serve the customers. So another way to put it is take care of the hearts, win the hearts of your employees, and they'll win the hearts of your customers. Mm, very well, very true. Um, Deanne, what is uh, advice you give? So when we talk about culture, sometimes it's overwhelming because people are like, I can't do anything about that. My boss, my owner, the CEO doesn't care about that. What can an individual do to impact where they work, um, how they're perceived, uh, how they serve? Uh, you know, what's some advice you would give someone out there that's maybe in a place where they like, gee, I wish we had a great culture. I wish we'd hire better talent. Um, I mean, outside of the fact that, hey, you should just get another job. Uh, you know, what can you do individually uh, where you're at? So I get asked that question all the time. And in the words of uh, A.L. Patterson, which was one of the best talks I've ever heard in my life, he said this. He said, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. So what does that mean for an individual contributor in an organization where maybe the culture is not so great and no one's listening to their ideas? Or maybe it's a first line supervisor, lower level supervisor that doesn't have the broad leadership influence. Well, it's simply this. Start with yourself. Are you, are you defined about what your own personal purpose is, 
your mission, your big goal for life or what you're trying to accomplish in your career? Do you have a set of demonstrated core values in your life? And are you consistently displaying those so that you influence other people to go, huh, what's up with that? Because once you start influencing one person at a time, that multiplies. It has a multiplier effect and you start influencing a lot of people. Or, you know, even when I was just a first line supervisor, I would develop those for my team, uh, a meaningful purpose, a challenging mission, demonstrated core values. Our team lived it out. Well, guess what? When our team got positive results, people asked the question, why? Well, because we've established this culture and this is what this means in our culture. And um, then the next thing you know, I'm asking my buddy and saying, hey, would you like to implement this same thing? And that's how you influence an organization from the ground up is you start with one individual and then you expand that influence until finally, you know, the top leadership of the organization is going, what's going on here? This grassroots level uh, level work is working. Let's give that a try. By the way, if none of that works, then yes, go get another job. <laughs> I love it. Hey, Kyle and I talked to Joe Musselman. He's the uh, uh, founder of the Honor Foundation. And he shared a little bit of what you just said. You know, Kyle, I think it's interesting. I'd like to hear your perspective on it. He was saying that really not enough people do self-reflection to find out who they are, what they want, and why they want it to go out and and sort of be happy with where they are. So they they accept what's given to them, and then they get ultimately frustrated, and they transfer blame onto an organization or an individual because they haven't done that self-reflection. You know, start with yourself, you said. Um, do you demonstrate your own personal core values? You know, so few people have actually had that kind of experience or done that kind of work that they get plugged into areas that frustrate them and then they blame others. And I think that, you know, here we are, you're the second person that we've talked to that has a really high level of success in in their professional field who said, hey, as an individual, you've got to know these things about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, in um, the next book I'm releasing April of 2021 called Crush Your Career, Ace the Interview, Land the Job and Launch Your Future, I actually go into great detail about how you develop these things for yourself because it's the foundation of who you're going to be professionally. You have to have uh, a sense of your own culture, if you will, in order to influence others in the workplace and beyond. Love it, love it, love it. I, Kyle I, and I were trying to make eye contact on Skype. Are you going next or am I going next? <laughs> what, what, uh, you know, along that same, that same vein, if you will, what, what I think is so fascinating, and I wish I would have er, learned this earlier on in my career as a leader, is understanding those individual motivators for the individuals that work for, or for, with, for me, with me, around me. I wish I would have understood those motivational uh, pieces, what what motivates an individual, what drives them. And, you know, it's so interesting to once you start really understanding what can work for those individuals around you and what might go against the grain for the culture that they're in. For example, I'll use this example, like in the SEAL teams, right? We're supposed to be very, very humble, very um, the humble elite quiet warrior. Well, if you're a guy that's motivated by, by recognition or being loud or being, you know, out there in the public, how do you reward that as a leader? And there's, and there's tips, there's tricks, there's great ways you can do that. You can put that guy in front of the general when we're doing a, or an admiral, when we're doing a, uh, you know, a, a briefing or, you know, he is allowed to brief the, uh, the, the con, con op, the concept of operations, but there's ways to, to go about that. And I just wish it's so good what you say, Deanne, I wish I would have learned that earlier on as a, as a leader of, Hey, what are, what are these motivational individual motivational, uh, reasons for these guys or gals that work for me? So that's so, so good. I love it. I, I, I wish love I had it. learned it earlier too, Kyle. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I read a book, midway through my career by Matthew Kelly called the dream manager. And I realized that what you have to do is you, I mean, you can take a group like millennials or Gen Xers or Gen Z, and you can say, well, this is their, their primary motivators. Well, okay. That's stereotypical, but across a, a generation to say, these are their motivators. But what you really have to do is sit down with individuals and understand early in my, earlier in my career, I had a young man who worked for me 
And I had this habit of doing public recognition all the time. That was the way I thought you did recognition. You brought the whole team together and said, hey, guess what Joe did? He accomplished this. And, right. and uh, you tell everybody. Well, after a while, Joe came to me privately and he said, please right. stop doing that. I said, excuse me? He said, it embarrasses me. He said, if you'll just give me a private thank you, that's all I need. And so it's as simple as that about listening to people and really sitting down one-on-one with those who report to you and, and learning and understanding what motivates them. So good. Uh, you know, in your, I'm going to transition a little bit. Um, in, in your book, you have, oh, I love this, I love this. You have a rules-based environment versus a principle environment. I, that's one of my, I would say, go so far as honestly to say one of my favorite parts uh, of the book, really, is in, uh, so I would love to hear from your perspective uh, for our listeners, uh, giving them a, a little educational piece on the rules-based environment versus principles, what it means from your mouth, but then also some, uh, just some top level of what they can do to actually implement a principle uh, culture. This is so important, and I agree with you. I think it's the crux of creating a remarkable culture is the difference in these two things. And if you've ever worked in a rules-based environment versus principles, um, you can so identify with some of the hallmarks. And, and, you know, even more so, the people who really lose when you have a rules-based environment is the customer, the I my husband and I we kind of do this as a joke now. We'll go someplace. Well, when we were going places before the um, quarantine, but yeah, <laughs> we would yeah. go places and we would have an experience. And he'd look at me. He said, "Rule based or principle based?" I mean, we knew <laughs> just by how we were treated by the employees. So, a rules based environment is basically where you box everybody in. You give them a set of rules. This is how they operate. By the way, you can select talent that, that thrives in a rules base because they don't have to think beyond your rule. They just follow the rule. They get to keep their job. In some organizations, that's even how you, got promo- you get promoted if you follow all the rules. Now, let me say something about this. Obviously, rules are needed in every organization, safety and security. You know, I worked in the restaurant industry for 33 years. We wouldn't have done very well if we didn't have food safety rules. But when rules um, overcome the principles, that's when you get into trouble. So a rules-based environment is actually often a toxic culture. And that was the first job I ever had was working in a rules-based culture. I tell the story in Bet on Talent, you might remember that uh, I was a print coordinator at this firm and sometimes receptionist at lunchtime. And and I I worked in this rules-based environment where the owner of the company took a nap every single day after lunch. And he left really strict instructions to not be disturbed for any reason whatsoever. So one day I'm sitting at the front desk at lunchtime as the receptionist and these men with suits and earpieces on walk in and they asked to speak to my boss. And I said, I'm sorry, that's not possible. And of course, you know what they said. Well, let's make it possible. (laughs) And uh, I, um, I, but the, you know, the truth was, is I had been so ingrained in this culture of following the rules that I was more concerned about waking up my snoring boss than I was obstructing armed federal agents. And so, you know, that's what happens in a rules-based environment. But in a principles-based environment, we free people up to actually do what they're th- there to do, which is to serve the customer. And instead of limiting out, you know, how many times do you call, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm sorry, I'm unable to do that. I don't have the authority to do that. Was, that's all telltale signs of rules-based culture. But you know when you've come into an organization that's principle-based because all of a sudden they're not telling you what they can't do. They're telling you everything they can do. And I do use Chick-fil-A as an example of that so many times when I'm talking to people because the franchisees in Chick-fil-A have become masters at this. Um, I give credit to Chick-fil-A as a corporation that freed their franchisees up and expected them to run their business as independent franchisees and serve their customers the way their customers want to be served. But the franchisees have really captured that concept and been able to communicate it to their team members and they free them up. And that's why you hear all the time heroic stories of Chick-fil-A team members um, doing things because they've been given this principle. And the principle is simply this, make second mile, second nature. Think about that for a minute. Make second mile, second nature. That's what they were told by their franchisees. And 
What that means to them is we know what first mile service is. First mile service is getting the order right. It's reasonably friendly service in a reasonable amount of time. But second mile service, that's competitive advantage. That's going over and beyond what the guest expects. And Chick-fil-A team members are awesome at that. That's why you'll find them jumping off dead car batteries in the parking lot and changing tires and going dumpster diving for discarded dental appliances and driving wallets back to their original owner 20 minutes you know, down the road with all the contents intact and jumping through drive-through windows to save a choking child and getting a boat and going rescuing customers that are in a flooded home. And the, the examples go on and on and on simply because somebody taught them a principle that said, make second mile second nature. And so when you do away with, you know, keeping people constrained to a stack of rules, you free them up to do what they're really there to do in the first place, serve the customer. So good. You know, one thing I really enjoyed uh, in your book, too, is your constant biblical references. Uh, I'm a Christian myself, so is Chris, obviously. And um, so I just wanted you to know from me to you, I, I love that. I appreciate that. And bravo to you for, for having the courage to do that. I think that's really cool. And for our listeners out there, that second mile um can you elaborate on the origin origination from that? Because it's so good. It's so good. Sure, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing your faith. And, you know, like the founder of Chick-fil-A that I worked for so many years, he said he couldn't really find a difference between biblical, good biblical principles and sound business practices. And yeah. I think he was right. And this is a great example. But this concept of second mile service comes from Matthew 5. And think about it, it's the greatest public speaking event in history. Jesus was there on the hillside of the Sea of Galilee, and he was preaching to the multitudes, and he explained to them, he used a parable, and as he often did, and he said, uh, you know, of course, at this time, um, the Jews were under Roman occupation, and they were used to being conscripted to do anything a Roman soldier might ask, and, and common that it was common that they were asked to carry the uh, packs of a Roman soldier or, or, an, or any Roman for that matter. And so Jesus said to them, he said, look, if you're asked to carry the pack one mile, go ahead and carry it two, cheerfully and joyfully, not out of um, conscription, but instead out of um, from your heart, the opportunity to serve another person, because that's what we're here to do. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, if you go on and you read further in uh, Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the son of man did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's the example he set for us, whatever our role is in business or in nonprofits or in communities, is that to be servants to others. That's good. That's really good. Next thing that I would like to uh, transition to, this is this is fascinating. I don't know if Chris told you, uh, part of our podcast is we're getting a bunch of different uh, perspectives uh, this this season. Uh, so throughout the season, we're going to have you know great people like yourself, but also some uh, some different perspectives in terms of uh, industries as well, or even professions. In fact, we're gonna have an award-winning um, architect come on, a lead certified architect come on later in the season to talk about what she has seen uh, industry, different industries, different businesses, how they've actually designed their uh, buildings or their facilities or their structures whatever it might be, to actually have an influence on the culture of those organizations. And one thing that you wrote in your book, which I, which I love, is the, is the essence. The essence. The, the culture can be found anywhere. It can be found in the art, in the architecture, in the furnishings, the flow. And, and whether it's intentional or not, it does have an influence on the culture. You know, so what say you? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, everything you do communicates culture. And so I was in an environment where um, it, it, was, uh, it was kind of an interesting thing that happened at Chick-fil-A. When the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, died in 2014, Chick-fil-A underwent a lot of change. And um, all, I mean, we had obviously a new CEO. We had a new president. We had a new executive committee. We had the first time ever board of directors of Chick-fil-A. That was at the very top levels. Um, 
we had a new dress code. We had menu item changes. We had um, we were expanding. What, what year was this? What year was this again? 2014 was when it started. And uh, so we had all of this um, change going on. And there was this really, in fact, we changed our core values after that. Um, so your purpose generally never changes. It's your why. Why you're in business at all. Why your organization exists. Missions change when you accomplish the mission. When by the measurements you set, you've accomplished that mission, it's time for the organization to set a new one. Values sometimes change when your leadership changes, and that's what happened at Chick-fil-A. The original set of values were very reflective of, of Truett Cathy, loyalty, generosity, excellence, integrity. Now, those things didn't go away. It wasn't like they weren't important anymore, but those were his words. And Chick-fil-A had a new CEO, Dan Cathy. And so what was more reflective of him? So they got a new set of core values. And those were, we're here to serve. We're better together. We're purpose-driven. And we pursue what's next. I love the last one because it really gave its nod to innovation, which to me is a trademark of Dan's leadership. So it was appropriate that it be there. So lots of change took place. And when all that change takes place, what you have to do is you have to decide what are the really important things that don't change and how will we communicate both that they're not changing and that we move the past forward so that we don't forget it. And so space is one of those ways you can do it, the relics that you put in your space. I'll give you a couple examples of what happened at Chick-fil-A. So the dress code changed. And for all those years, any man who worked for Chick-fil-A or was a franchisee or a leadership position in the restaurant wore a Chick-fil-A tie. I'm sure you've seen some at some point, Kyle. Um, they had logos on them. You might not have any idea how many different designs there were. Um, I don't know exactly, but it feels like there were, you know, in the hundreds. Um, some of them uh, were really unique. Some of them just had the logo on it, but some of them you know, looked like the lemonade and some of them looked like waffle fries and some of them looked like, do you know who the first mascot of Chick-fil-A was long before they eat more chicken cows? No, no. Doodles the chicken. Doodles the chicken was even on some of these ties. So it was the history of Chick-fil-A back to 1967 when the first restaurant opened all in ties. Well, there was a certain day when they decided the dress code changed and nobody would be wearing ties unless they wanted to anymore. And so the organization gathered over the atrium of the, the headquarters there. Dan took off his tie and threw it down. And the 15 or seven, I guess only half of them were men, but the men who were wearing ties threw their ties over the atrium. Well, how do you preserve that? Because some of those ties were actually named after different people in the organization that had made contributions. They were named after uh, locations of Chick-fil-A restaurants. So they made this display they tore down the walls at Chick-fil-A, went to open office space to create a more collaborative culture. And one of the displays they have is all the ties are encased on the wall. And they tell the story behind it. And I could go on and on. That's just one example. They made sure uh, the, the piece of furniture that I interviewed all those candidates all those years, thousands of candidates sat on this particular blue sofa waiting to be interviewed at Chick-fil-A. And so they preserved that piece of furniture, and they told, and they storytell all through the building about why they've kept these um, particular relics when they made all these changes. So very, very important that you consider that everything you do impacts the culture, and everything you do tells some story within the culture. So being intentional about that's incredibly important. Very, very. I love it. You know, we have a, we have a museum um, in uh, Fort Pierce, Florida. For the Navy SEAL community, uh, and it and it tells a story all the way back to you know the 40s um, during World War II when the guys were uh, doing a landmine or excuse me um, uh, sea mine uh, removal from the oceans all the way up to planning you know uh, uh, some doing some uh, excuse me some removal from uh, D-Day all the way up to uh, JFK. Uh, in 1962, when JFK actually uh, commissioned the SEAL teams. Uh, and so we get to see the whole story of the SEAL teams and, you know, the roots from where we came from, from the UDT days before we were Navy SEALs. And it's so powerful when you visit uh, places like this or the Heritage Center and you get to see it. 
and you get to and to witness it and you're like, wow, these are the people that all came before me. You know, and, and, and it's very similar exactly to what you were just saying about at Chick-fil-A. You're, you can I can imagine being there as you're telling the story. I can imagine living that culture. I can imagine walking through the halls at the HQ and seeing all of this history and going as a franchisee and saying, wow, look at look at all of these people that have gone before me. So that's so cool. I love. Thank you for sharing that. That is that is just fantastic. Um, all right. So. As we bring it to a close, Deanne, I want to ask you, what would you like to say? Uh, oh, actually, you know what? No, I want to go back. I want to touch on one more thing. I almost forgot. You just mentioned it. You said that was Dan Cathy's legacy. Dan Cathy's legacy was around innovation, yeah. right? Yeah. So we, we our listenership is a lot of kind of tech startup uh, individuals, um, you know, or maybe uh, small business owners. So, so what would you say to them? How could they, what are some tips that they could go, hey, I want to implement this type of change or help this type of culture, encourage this type of culture to help innovation in my organization? So Kyle, innovation is incredibly important part of culture because a healthy culture is a collaborative culture. And we know collaboration brings us to the results that we're looking for. It helps us achieve our goals. It helps us, in our instance, at Chick-fil-A, win the hearts of customers. And so um, to have a collaborative environment, it has to be driven by innovation. Um, thinking about what's next. How can we solve the next problems? I love the example of one of the great things that Chick-fil-A did is, is come to market with a fantastic app. And um, the mobile app for the people who use it. I mean, at one time, that mobile app was downloaded more often than Facebook and all the other, you know, number one apps. It was number one for some time uh, in the app store. And what was great about what Chick-fil-A did then, they were just trying to find different ways to serve customers, particularly a group of customers that, you know, were more digital natives and, and used to interacting in that way. But think about what just happened with this pandemic. And it really helped them stay in business and serve their customers as safely as possible. They already had the app in place. They already had, I don't know how many downloads, but um, well over a million, and it could have been more than that. The um, crisis comes about, the pandemic comes about, and they don't skip a beat. They're prepared to serve their customers because they were ahead of the game because they focus on the value of being innovative. And so I think that's, um, it's so important to develop a culture that's healthy so that collaboration can thrive, um, that people are figuring out ways to think ahead because you never know. I mean, you could have never predicted, none of us could predicted that that would be the greatest use of that app would actually come about during the pandemic. That's good, that's really good. All right. So, Deanne, one of the questions, one of the things that Chris and I have been uh, playing with is how how good if a culture is really, really good, if a culture is really great, if a culture is world class, how much of bad leadership can it take? That's a really good question. I actually don't think a culture can be remarkable with poor leadership. Now, especially leadership at the top, I don't think that's possible. When I first uh, started my own company, uh, two days after I retired from Chick-fil-A, I received a phone call from a leader, uh, a CEO at a $12 billion business who wanted me to come and consult them on their culture. And I asked him the question, who's responsible for culture? And he said, I am. I said, well, that's the right answer. So let's get to work. Because if the CEO is not the culture champion of the organization, I don't believe you can have a remarkable culture. Now, once you get beyond that, you also, I think, um, for every leader who doesn't demonstrate the elements of your culture on a daily basis, it exponentially impacts the engagement of the employees and ultimately the service to the customers. So, you know, bad, poor leadership that doesn't reflect the culture, especially in a remarkable culture, has to be dealt with quickly, swiftly, um, and either get that leadership up to speed or, or it's going to need to be replaced because it will become a cancer in the organization and you'll lose the remarkable culture pretty quickly. 
you talk about role models who are consistent. And for the Navy SEAL community, when you draw, when you walk into a platoon, you have what we call like a sea daddy, right? And your sea daddy is your mentor. He's the guy you look up to. For me, I have a, he's, he's still in my life, you know, 20 years later. In fact, he and I work together uh, on a, in a nonprofit, and I, and I still look up to him very much so. Um, he was such a great role model to me because he was always consistent. I knew no matter what, if I went to him with a problem and I didn't have a solution, he was going to give me what I used to call the Rob G just stare, which meant he would just look at me and just kind of nod his head like this and uh, just look straight at me and just wait until I did until I go, okay, I need to go find the solution, you know, because he knew I, he knew I knew it was, I was just being maybe lazy. And, uh, and so role models being consistent, um, how, what is the way or hack the best way that you've found in organizations to encourage, to encourage a culture that, uh, that the role models are consistent? Well, you definitely, if you want consistent role models, you have to be really clear on expectations and clear to hold people accountable. And so let's just talk about leadership. Let's not call them role models. Let's just talk about sure. leadership consistency. Um, and there's no leader that I probably could assess better than my own self in some ways. And, you know, I have to admit, I was not a consistent leader when I started leading. Um, I was very much a part of an entrepreneurial organization where it was a do-it-yourself development program. Um, I found my own mentors. I, I had to figure out how to grow myself. Now, um, as organizations grow, they often have all the formal programs. And later I benefited from all that. But as an early leader, I had a lot of opportunities to grow. <laughs> and one of those was actually in this area of consistency. Um, I think that I was emotional. I think that I um, took my moods to work. And I had not found this personal stability that it takes to be a strong leader. So my recommendation around that is people have to ground themselves before they can be leaders of others. And they can. Um, and so I actually got some great feedback from my boss at the time. Um, and he said and he said it in such a nice way that I almost didn't know I was getting feedback. He said, hey, I don't know what you need to do to arrive at the office, you know, positive every day. But you, you might want to think about that and you might want to think about what it would take to just get you here in the best. Po- he didn't use these words, but we were saying the best possible version of you. And so he gave me some examples of what he did um, to do that, to get himself in the right frame of mind. And from that moment on until today, I still practice that discipline. And the discipline is to get up before everybody else does, to have my coffee, to read my Bible, to pray, to read about something, to read a book, to read something that, that fills me mentally, to exercise um, both for the physical benefits of it, but also for the emotional and mental benefits of it. And then by the time I got to the office, I was I was ready for my day. And the consistency and discipline of that pro- that process turned into a consistency and discipline about how I showed up. In fact, by the end of my career, um, sometimes I was actually criticized for being too positive um, by some people. It's like, how can she be so positive? Well, when you start your day off that way, it changes everything. And so that's that's how I grew and changed myself. But I think that it has to start with those individual habits. By the way, if you've not read James Clear, Atomic Habits, I wish I'd had that one when I was about 25 years old. Um, that was my book of the year for 2019. He published that in 2018. Great book. And uh, it, to help people establish the kind of habits that will grow them in their leadership and help them be the role models that organizations need uh, for their culture. That's so good. I, I'm going to check that one out. Atomic Habits, you said. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, D, and sorry if I, I've been saying D all day. I apologize if you prefer Deanna. That just means asked. we're close friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a bad habit of mine to um, – 
to shorten someone name someone's name. I do. I've been doing it my entire life. I feel like and the and the and the seal community definitely, uh, you know, uh, put it on steroids for sure. Is giving everyone a nickname or or shortening their name. So, D. It's been such a pleasure to have you, to learn from you. I've gotten, I've got pages upon pages of notes. I don't know if you've been noticing, but I'm, I've been head down, chin down a lot, Ah, writing notes, (laughs) just powering away through all these notes. So it's been such a pleasure having you today and we wish you nothing but the best. Everyone, please go check out her book, books, plural. And uh, Dee, thank you and have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle and Chris. I appreciate it very much. Wow, what a podcast. So much information. That was incredible. If you enjoyed that as much as we did, please give us five stars. Please share this with your friends. Tell everybody about this Culture Force podcast. Please pre-order Deanne's upcoming book, Crush Your Career. Ace the interview, land the job, and launch your career. It releases in April 2021. Listen to the next one. Our upcoming guests include Dan Luna, former Navy SEAL and CEO, founder of the Team 3LX, leadership coach. He and Kyle share some incredible stories about their time in BUDS. We got Rob Newsom coming up, who's the vice president of strategy and vision for the Philadelphia 76ers. We got Larry McIntosh, former chief branding officer for Pepsi. He's the one who turned the Pepsi can blue. He hired Cindy Crawford. And so Kyle and I have a ton of questions about how he was able to pull that off. And most of all, we're just glad you're here. Uh, we promise to try harder next time around. We hope you enjoyed yourself. Kyle, any closing words? Thank you for checking us out. And uh, please leave some comments below. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Culture Force out. I've been on my own Trying to, trying to, trying to find my way home